Listener Production. Here, where Queen Elizabeth was married and crowned, we gather from across the nation, from the Commonwealth, and from the nations of the world, to mourn our loss, to remember her long life of selfless service, and ensure confidence to commit her to the mercy of God, our Maker and Redeemer. That is the Dean of Westminster, David Hoyle, giving some final words about the late Queen Elizabeth II. She was buried just minutes before we started recording this podcast in the crypt of the King George VI Memorial Chapel, along with her late husband, Prince Philip. It is Tuesday, the 20th of September, and in this episode of The Briefing, we're also going to go deep on a new concept called pre-bunking. Now, instead of debunking misinformation after it's already been spread, this is a way of teaching us to identify manipulation and disinformation before it changes our beliefs. It's even something Google's getting on board with. Yeah, that's in the second half of this episode. First, our headlines, starting with the Queen's funeral. The Queen has been laid to rest this morning at a private burial service at St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. The most senior official of the Royal Household, the Lord Chamberlain, has broken his wand of office and placed it on the Queen's coffin, signifying the end of his service to the Queen as Sovereign. Garda Principal King of Arms David White said this after the coffin was lowered into the vault. Thus, it hath pleased Almighty God to take out of this transitory life unto his divine mercy the late, most high, most mighty and most excellent monarch, Elizabeth II. The Queen is buried in the same chapel as her late husband, Prince Philip, her father, King George, her mother and her sister. Earlier, the world got to say goodbye with a moving funeral at Westminster Abbey, attended by thousands, including global political leaders. And here are some of those key moments. The grief of this day, felt not only by the late Queen's family, but all round the nation, the Commonwealth and the world, arises from her abundant life and loving service, now gone from us. She was joyful, present to so many, touching a multitude of lives. Now, in silence, let us in our hearts and minds recall our many reasons for thanksgiving. Pray for all members of her family and commend Queen Elizabeth to the care and keeping of Almighty God. Service in life, hope in death. All who follow the Queen's example and inspiration of trust and faith in God can with her say, we will meet again. Yeah, incredibly moving. Um, One of the voices you heard there was the Dean of Windsor, Dave Connor, who also had this to say about the Queen, which for me really sums it up. In the midst of our rapidly changing and frequently troubled world, her calm and dignified presence has given us confidence to face the future as she did with courage and with hope. Yeah, and I think for 70 years, that's what she's done for so many people. She was that dignified, constant inner 
a world of anxious change, kind of like the wise grandmother that so many of us got to share together. Absolutely, especially in the last, you know, few years where I guess because she did get to the age of 96, Mm. many of us assumed that perhaps she'd be around forever because she was certainly around for the vast majority of most of our lives and our relatives' lives as well. So many moments of that incredibly um, moving and, and long uh, service that, that really affected people particularly, and it's, it's amazing how dogs can do this, but when the corgis were there waiting, she's got two corgis left and they were waiting on leashes for mm. uh, the coffin to arrive at Windsor Castle. Also, Princess Charlotte really broke down in tears mm. and needed to be comforted by her mum, Kate. A couple of uh, quirky moments too. Uh, Joe Biden was late. And he and the First Lady had to actually wait uh, for a procession of Victoria Cross recipients to make their way to their seats before they could uh, make their way to theirs. And there was a note that Prince Charles wrote to his mother and a, a spider was spotted crawling all over it and that really lit up social media too. So plenty of stuff for people to talk about. Yeah, interesting you mentioned the kids, um, George and Charlotte. I'm sure Louis was there too, but... um. You know, I was thinking about um, little Prince George. He'll be the king one day. And Mm. and there he was in that very public moment uh, saying goodbye to his great-grandmother. Yeah, it's a lot for those kids to take in, isn't it? But, um, you know, I guess if they've got that life of service ahead of them, they, Mm. they do need to start preparing. Yeah, and it was just so ornate, you know, seeing the guards and the Royal Navy pulling the Queen's coffin on that beautiful old gun carriage. It was the same one that Queen Victoria's coffin was carried on at her funeral in 1901. You had the the crown, the orb and spectre on top of the coffin, saw Westminster Abbey in all its glory and that incredible choir. Yeah, really beautiful and very moving. Yeah, and I also think the English language, although used in a very biblical way, was, was on a, a beautiful display in parts mm. of the ceremony too. To other news now, and two states are scrapping the need to wear masks on public transport in the latest change to COVID rules. Yeah, from today, South Australia and from tomorrow, New South Wales residents will no longer need to put one on before hopping on a bus or train or light rail. Same goes for taxis and Ubers. Yeah, so this change comes as COVID cases decline and it also aligns with the decision to remove the mandate for airports, although people are still being encouraged to mask up when you can't physically distance. Yeah, masks will still be required at public hospitals, private health facilities, aged care facilities as well. And from Friday in South Australia, visitors to aged care homes won't have to be vaccinated and the cap on visitors will be removed as long as 70% of residents are vaccinated. Police in Queensland will stop using controversial safety hoods in all watch houses following a review. Yeah, they're known as spit hoods and it's been revealed that they were used in Queensland on 138 occasions over the last seven years. They're used as a barrier to prevent officers being spat on, bitten or exposed to transmissible diseases. And this decision comes after recent revelations that they'd been used on 20 young people in Queensland police watch houses. South Australia became the first jurisdiction to ban the hoods last year, but Western Australia still uses them on adults in some settings. And the ACT and Northern Territory use them on juveniles. And the massive typhoon we mentioned yesterday, um, that's the one in Japan, 
Well, it's been downgraded, which is good news, still is wreaking havoc. It's taken two lives and injured 115 people and left more than half a million households without power. So this storm has also cancelled hundreds of flights and this weekend's Japanese Grand Prix is now in doubt. All right, in just a moment, we're talking about pre-bunking, how to identify mis- and disinformation. Now let's get into today's briefing on pre-bunking, which is the step before debunking misinformation and disinformation. It's an idea a bunch of social scientists from Cambridge University are working on as a way to fight back against the growing amount of misinformation and conspiracy theories online. Remember, someone may be pulling your strings. Don't be manipulated. So these social scientists have made a series of five animated videos which try and explain in simple language some of the most common manipulation techniques in misinformation and disinformation. They're cartoons, and as you can hear, they use very accessible language and pop culture to make the point. False dichotomy. It's designed to make you think you only got two choices to choose from, when in reality, there are more. Peppier headlines with a bunch of emotionally charged words. Call it a horrific accident instead of a serious one. If someone tries to make a complicated problem look simple by placing blame on a single group, they're most likely trying to manipulate you. Ad hominem attack, which means against the person in Latin. Because even as far back as ancient Rome, people were aware that attacking the questioner rather than the argument is unfair. Yeah, so Google has now jumped on board and it's trying out these techniques in a number of Eastern European countries in a bid to counter growing anti-refugee sentiment online about people fleeing Ukraine. So to explain how this works, we're joined by John Rosenbeck, one of the brains behind the idea. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Cambridge University's Social Decision Making Lab. John, thank you for joining us. Your research points out that debunking misinformation after it's been spread has a limited impact because the damage has already been done. Can you explain why that is? First of all, I think debunking myths is very useful and should be done, especially if someone's lying on the internet, someone should probably go and correct it. But it's also becoming increasingly clear that debunking comes with a couple of shortcomings. First of all, uh, it seems to be the case that the people who see the original misinformation and believe it and spread it don't really interact with fact checks all that much. And that's because fact checks are kind of boring, right, compared to really emotive information. That is one of the factors, I think. Another factor is probably something like distrust or a lack of trust really in in, in fact-checking agencies, companies and entities and so on. So that that also makes a big difference if you don't really trust the source of the fact-check or if you're skeptical of fact-checks in general, for example, because you consider them to be tools of manipulation in and of themselves, that doesn't really help in terms of you updating your beliefs about whatever topic is being lied about. And speaking of beliefs, the other problem is that the Beliefs have already set in once you've read the the misinformation, right? Even though you might later read the fact check. Yeah, that's right. So there's this phenomenon in psychology called the continued influence effect, which basically says even if you successfully correct a myth, there's still some some residue left, some residual memory left of that original myth. You don't completely undo the belief in the misinformation in its entirety. 
All right. So this idea of working to pre-bunk misinformation, can you explain what that actually means and, and why it can be a bit more successful? So pre-bunking basically means preemptive debunking, which means you're trying to stay ahead of the curve. Or in practical terms, what you're trying to do is reduce the probability that someone believes a myth or a piece of misinformation to begin with. And the way that works, at least the way that we've uh, gone about it, is by pointing out how you might be manipulated or lied to uh, when you go online, which means you look at various sort of persuasion techniques and manipulation techniques, let's say uh, emotional manipulation, but also logical fallacies such as false dichotomies, and you point out not only how they work and why they're fallacious, but also how they might be used on you when you go into certain environments online or when you scroll through your timeline on Twitter or Facebook or another uh, social media account. Okay, so your videos, you've made five of them and they look at um, five of the key techniques. So as you mentioned, um, one of them is emotional manipulation. Another one is incoherent information, logical fallacies. Tell us about these these techniques because I found them really interesting because they actually were similar to what I've seen in, in religious contexts. So they seem like really age-old techniques of, of manipulating people. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So for this project, what we wanted to do was find five of these manipulation techniques, as you mentioned, emotional manipulation, false dichotomies, incoherence, meaning mutually exclusive arguments, and then ad hominem attacks, attacking the person, not the argument, and scapegoating, which is singling out a group or individual for being responsible for a very complex problem. And we don't claim that together these five techniques are what comprises all of misinformation, but we know they're common enough. We see them quite often online in, in a variety of content. So we thought it would be useful to, to tackle those uh, with these videos. Have you had a, a look at just who is creating this information and, and whether they're doing it strategically? What have you found in that space? So that's a very interesting question. Generally speaking, misinformation refers to false or misleading information that is produced not necessarily deliberately, whereas disinformation is produced with intent, meaning an intent to make money or an intent to achieve a political goal or something else. It's not entirely clear what the origin is of most of the misinformation that we see online or the disinformation that we see online. We know, for instance, when it comes to COVID-19 misinformation or anti-vax misinformation, there was a study that singled out, I think it was 11 or 12 individuals that were responsible for an absurd percentage of the misinformation on U.S. social media about vaccines and COVID-19. So they don't really care what the mis- or disinformation is about exactly. Rather, it's the point is not to persuade, but to sow discord and disunity and so on. Yeah, it's really interesting that, yeah, you can sort of range from, say, a troll factory creating disinformation, say, in, in Russia, for example, through to um, mainstream media, even shock jocks on you know mainstream radio stations use a lot of these same techniques. So it's really interesting to apply this to a broad range of information. So you've created these videos and they're entertaining, they're fun, they try and use relatively simple language so they don't lose people along the way. Tell us how you're rolling them out and to whom you're rolling them out and what results you've seen. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. That's very kind. Uh, we work quite hard on the scripts, but 
to be honest, I, I wrote a substantial amount of them. And uh, when they show them to young people, uh, meaning a lot younger than I am, they tend to say that they're a bit dated. They're like, man, that's mm. that's a tough thing to hear when you're 32. <laughs> it is what it is. Um, <laughs> you're still quite young. Wow. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a very difficult go. task. And I, I did wonder whether the criticism I would have is that um, – for people who need to hear this most, they still might get lost in this or might not speak directly to them or it might require still, as much as you've tried, too many building blocks of knowledge to even get to this point to know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't think there's any single intervention that will be completely effective on its own. So we tried very hard to make sure that the examples of these manipulation techniques that are mentioned in the videos aren't off-putting, meaning if you make them very political, if you use an example of a politician using one of these manipulation techniques in a speech, let's say, the people that like this politician are going to tune out, right? So we didn't do that. Instead, we went to pop culture. So for instance, uh, one of the examples of, of a false dichotomy is from uh, Star Wars Episode 3, I believe, where Anakin Skywalker says, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy to, uh, to Obi-Wan, right? So we tried as best we could to make sure that we didn't activate people's sort of political identities and so on. And uh, that people who watch these videos aren't like, well, this is just another, this is, this is hogwash. This is propaganda. I don't need to listen to this. So now Google is working with you and your team at Cambridge. I guess the cynical part of me is wondering why. Uh, do they see it as their interest to help stop misinformation or is this just a bit of PR to make it look like they care? That's an excellent question. I like that one. The team that we worked with at Google, which is called Jigsaw, is a team that sponsors research basically into various solutions to problems that are, if not, created by Google, then perhaps exacerbated. But in my mind, that doesn't absolve Google of the responsibility to also tackle other problems, right? For instance, looking at the recommendation algorithm of YouTube, right? If, if it sucks people into really, really dodgy content, uh, slowly but surely, that's something we need to look at as well, even if it clashes with YouTube's business model. Uh, it's not just a PR stunt, but yes, you're right that obviously Google does benefit from from uh, from sponsoring this kind of research that's true i found it really interesting that the the context for your your study was actually around the crisis in ukraine so so tell us about that the project this one started two years ago ish in june july 2020 so the starting point wasn't wasn't the crisis in ukraine obviously but google did find that this approach was uh, useful and promising within the context of the war in Ukraine. So they've sponsored the creation of a series of videos tackling disinformation about refugees. For instance, if millions and millions of people are fleeing Ukraine, going to different countries, statistically, one of them is going to commit a crime, right? That's just how it works. So what you could predict ahead of time was that less than honest actors, people seeking to spread disinformation about refugees would single out these cases of, of, of theft or whatever other crime might have been committed by a refugee and make it look like it's representative of the broader group, which is not the case, right? So see, this is how they repay us for our hospitality 
Ukrainians are terrible people because they steal from us and so on, right? Instead of being grateful for the refugee status. That kind of disinformation you could instantly predict. Just lastly, John, where to from here? You've done this, you know, fairly large study. You've found that the videos are effective in helping people identify these manipulation techniques. What are you going to do with this? As always in research, there's a lot of open questions left. So the videos themselves are freely available online for anyone who's who's interested in watching them. So if there is a government, let's say, that wants to run a pre-bunking campaign using these videos, they can easily do so. That's John Rosenbeek from Cambridge University. I guess what I love the most about watching these videos is they've used, you know, characters like Homer Simpson to make these ideas stickier because I think otherwise people might just tune out. Yeah, they've done their best to make them accessible. I, I also like the way they've really broken apart the different techniques that are used here. I still worry, though, that this won't really connect with the people that need it most, the people that are most susceptible to misinformation. I think it'll still sound too complex or or boring or like they're being told what to think and they might distrust where it's coming from and who's behind it. And I guess on the, the question you asked, which was a good one about why Google are involved with this, was well, like, well, it's great for Google to be helping out with this kind of stuff. But I, I would also like to know, are they doing everything they can to dial down their algorithms because they have a financial interest in spreading as much information to as many people as possible for more ad revenue. But the more they they dial up the algorithm to extreme content, the more it can send people down the rabbit hole. So what are they doing with their algorithm to stop misinformation being spread? Tomorrow on The Briefing, the incredible story and the amazing technology being used to try and bring the Tasmanian tiger back to life. Listener.